Hello and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by Renee Vangestein, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today, we'll look at the latest trip by a high-ranking U.S. official to China, this time by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. We'll also look at one of China's biggest retaliatory moves to date in response to U.S. sanctions targeting its high-tech industry. We'll start with Janet Yellen, whose China trip at the end of last week comes just a couple of weeks after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken became the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit China since the pandemic. Similar to Blinken, Yellen struck a relatively upbeat tone after her meetings with a number of top officials, including former economic czar Liu He, Vice Premier He Lifeng, and People's Bank of China head Pan Gongsheng. She said that while the U.S. and China will continue to pursue their own interests, she believes the world's two largest economies can still engage in, quote, healthy economic competition. So, Renee, uh, what's your big takeaways from this meeting, especially based on the people that Yellen met and compared with Blinken's visit a couple of weeks ago? Well, I think, first of all, it's very important that uh, uh, the two sides uh, continue to engage with each other, uh, talk and meet um, from time to time at the, at the senior levels of the U.S. administration on one hand and, and the Chinese government on the other hand. Now, there's a big difference, I think, between the two. Um, Blinken uh, visit is obviously within the context, was within the context of politics, foreign policy in particular and so on, uh, whereas Yellen was uh, within uh, the, con the economic context, uh, business, economies, currencies, and, 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 all of, and all of that. So that's, that's a big differentiation between the two visits, in my view, at least, first of all. Um, for Blinken, he kind of represents everything that China doesn't really like about the U.S. in terms of foreign policy, uh, the Taiwan situation, and all of that, mm. and, um, and the efforts on the U.S. side to, the way they put it, counterbalance the influence of China, uh, at least in Asia, but also in the rest of the world. So uh, there are very different dynamics at play there, in my opinion, whereas um, Yellen came over to talk about business, economics, and so on, and uh, China, especially uh, right now, given the state of the Chinese economy obviously has a lot of interest in, in continuing to engage uh, on, the, um, on the commercial, trade, economic, and maybe even currency fronts. Mm -hmm. What do you make, uh, I'm curious, of the, the guest list? I mean, China gives so much attention to, you know, sort of face who meets with whom. I mean, Blinken met with Xi Jinping himself, whereas Yellen didn't get an audience with Xi, but she got an audience, I believe, I didn't mention it earlier, but I believe she met with Li Qiang, who's sort of the number two, and then also the uh, head of the Bank of China. So like you say, economic business people, but does that sort of say anything, you think? 
Um, I, I don't know. I tend to look at it as, you know, being a very pragmatic approach on uh, on the Chinese side as to who meets with whom to discuss what. Mm. Um, and uh, typically, I mean, even if over the last five years, the second term of Xi Jinping, the role or, or the powers of the prime minister when it comes to the economy were somewhat diminished uh, with the president himself playing a, a more important role. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be the same exactly these days, uh, given, I guess, that uh, all the standing committee and the prime minister in particular are uh, very strong mm-hmm. allies of, of the president. So it looks like it has kind of reverted to uh, foreign policies. Obviously, the premise of uh, presidency economy is more the premise and the responsibility of the prime minister, in my view. All right. What's next? I think Biden and, and Xi Jinping have have met before maybe on the sidelines of some events very informally but uh do you think we might see a, a more formal state visit uh or you know a more formal meeting at least between these two guys uh in the next you know this year next year and what form might such a meeting take uh you know including when and where well that's uh that's very difficult to predict i mean after after all biden more than anybody in the administration has made uh, you know, comments about uh, about presidency and his unlimited uh, power, uh, <laughs> right. and uh, that uh, I'm sure have not been received very well uh, by presidency. So I would think that there's probably a you know a pretty strong level of animosity uh, hmm. there at that level. Uh, number one, number two. Um, yeah, you would think that with Blinken going there and then Yellen, um, eventually it would lead to a meeting at the next level. However, um, you know, we also have to consider the fact that 2024 is a presidential election in right. the United States. Mm-hmm. We are mid-2023. Things are going to start getting pretty serious. Um, I would say in February, March, with the um, uh, primaries and so on, even if Biden looks like, you know, he won't be challenged on the Democratic side, obviously on the Republican side, there'll be lots of comments made about foreign policy, about the U.S. economy, about obviously everything that touches politics. So it might become difficult for Biden to decide to go to Beijing, for instance, um, as opposed to maybe meeting with President Xi somewhere at the occasion of one of those, you know, global meetings, economic meetings or political meetings or whatever of various Mm -hmm. uh, global organizations. That probably would be more acceptable from a political standpoint in the U.S., um, and uh, and be viewed as more neutral, as opposed to Biden going to Beijing and giving Beijing an opportunity to 
you know, brag about the fact that uh, the uh, president of the U.S. came to Beijing. Uh, just remember one thing, you know, is as much as on the China side, um, you have, you know, violent reactions on social media um, from, you know, the so-called nationalistic crowd in China, and that was on display recently with respect to at least one of the meetings that uh, one of the lunches that Yellen held with women, mm. powerful women, influential women in economics and so on in China during her visit, uh, there have been, uh, there's been a fair amount of criticism in the U.S. about the fact that when uh, Yellen met uh, Chinese officials, she bowed. Oh. Uh, and and that got that got some pretty strong negative reaction in the U.S. So, you know, you look at all of that uh, stuff, upcoming presidential election and so on. Uh, if there's going to be a meeting, and I think it would be good that there be a meeting, but it's probably going to have to be on neutral ground somewhere. Okay. Well, next, why don't we uh, move on to what's arguably China's biggest retaliatory move to date for U.S. sanctions aimed at stifling certain Chinese sectors like high-tech chips and artificial intelligence. In this case, Beijing announced the new, new restrictions on the export of gallium and germanium, two key minerals used in the manufacture of high-tech chips. China's Commerce Ministry said the restrictions on the export of more than three dozen minerals will take effect August 1st. And many believe China could take additional steps in the future. I know you're not a technical person, but, uh, you know, can you talk sort of just in general, like what kind of actual impact, you know, again, based on what you've read as well, uh, will this move have both in terms of production of some of these high-tech products and, and also on U.S.-China relations? Um, well, embargoes on anything usually don't work. They very rarely work to the full expected extent by whoever takes those measures. You you know, one could say that uh, the U.S. ban on high-end chips and so on is working, but, you know, I also read articles about the fact that there are ways that such chips still make their way inside China and so on. Hmm. The uh, number one. Number two, um, the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy and the whole global economy is, is very, very integrated and, and highly interdependent. So, you know, on, on one hand, you can limit the supply of certain types of material that uh, are used to, let's say, manufacture high-end chips, but these chips go into products that are mostly manufactured in China today. Um, so it's that's where the interdependence is, um, and uh, and at some point in time, I don't know exactly which particular chips may be impacted by that. But in chips in in general, the Chinese economy in the manufacturing of uh, products uh, that it exports to the world obviously makes abundant use of massive amounts of chips. So if all of a sudden you start limiting the amount of chips in the that you know circulate around the world, then inevitably at some point in time it's going to have an impact on the Chinese ah, economy sorry. as well, at hmm. least on the manufacturing and export side of the business. Number two, number three, there have been such 
uh, attempts in the past to limit exports of certain rare earth materials. And the one thing that it did is that it it basically created a uh, an effort in other parts of the world to start mining right. uh, for those um, uh, particular materials. Uh, and and you know, there's nothing like uh, there's no incentive as powerful for business people as being convinced that something is really going to be in short supply for a long time to start investing into basically producing it. Hmm. And we've seen that in the U.S. as well. Historically, the mining industry in the U.S. has suffered greatly on account of damage to the environment and so on. And most mines were shut off in the U.S. 20, 30 years ago, and for some even uh, earlier than that. But there have been more recently efforts and actual attempts, again, at reopening some mines or starting new mines at some point in time when there is a huge necessity to do something that some people may not like, the government obviously has an ability to impose right. change. And and I, I would think that that actually would happen. Uh, and there's, when you see how the Biden administration is throwing you know tens of billions of dollars at manufacturing chips in the U.S. and so on, if if this became a program, I'm sure that they would not hesitate to throw a lot of money and put pressure on environmental groups to um, actually, you know, allow mining in the U.S. again, at least for some of those materials. Australia is, is another candidate, obviously, and there are the parts of the world where these minerals exist. Okay, right. Well, that was going to be my next question, because the, the big topic that comes up a lot is rare earths and and china's the world's biggest supplier of those today um, yeah. yeah so today. right now i think they make like two-thirds or something but you're right mm. i mean it's a mineral at the end of the day uh you know it can be mined in other places on earth so i guess my question is one do you think china will because i mean rare earth seems like a bigger category do you think they might try to do something similar or did they deliberately not do that. And then the second question is just quickly, you know, does, is China, like you're sort of implying, ultimately shooting itself in the foot by doing this? Because, you know, these materials can be developed elsewhere. So, you know, they're just going to basically write themselves out of the global supply chain with things like this. Well, um, the, uh, the, the one factor here that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that it takes time to right. uh, develop alternatives. So it is possible that uh, I'm sure that China knows that. I'm sure that, you know, whatever I have said so far, they know, they've thought about it, and, and they've had like what-if scenarios and so on. Uh, so maybe they're just looking at it as an opportunity to punch back, uh, knowing that there's only such a long time window to do that, and that eventually the rest of the world is, is going to catch up. Mm -hmm. But you don't decide to start a mine today and start producing tomorrow morning. I mean, it, it takes it takes right. time. And in some cases, it can take, you know, one, two years before right. you actually uh, are at a production level that is, that is uh, sizable. Okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up there. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. 
Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. In our next program, we'll look at major new finds for Ant Financial and Tencent. And we'll also look at Fresh Hippo, the Alibaba-owned supermarket chain that's revving up for a Hong Kong IPO by the end of this year. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. Meantime, hope to see you all next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you all. Thank you all.